As we now come to chapter 11 in this book, we want to remind ourselves that Jesus has just left Jerusalem. He left Jerusalem and has gone beyond the Jordan, if you look at verse 40 of chapter 10. He went again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. He had gone there to escape the Jews who were desiring to stone him. If you look at verse 31 of chapter 10, a reminder, they picked up stones again to stone him. And then in verse 39, it says that they tried or were seeking to seize him. So they have been out to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. He has now departed from them. And he has had a very profitable ministry, not with them, but on the other side of the Jordan. That's how we closed things last week. Many believed on in him there. That was not where he had been ministering in Jerusalem, but after he had actually left them who were trying to kill him. And he ministered the word of God. John, the gospel writer, we need to be reminded as we get into chapter 11, and I think it has significance to the passage that's before us today, obviously. John, the writer of this gospel account, remember, has only recorded selective miracles. He hasn't recorded everything that Jesus has done. And I told you when we started the book, you'll hear that so many times you should have it memorized. But again, as we come to chapter 11, it's so significant because there are many other things, according to chapter 20 and verses 30 uh, and 31, many other things that could have been recorded that Jesus did. But these that he has recorded, as we go into chapter 11 now, these that he has recorded are recorded so that we may understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life through his name. That has been the purpose of his writing, and that is the purpose of his presentation of the miracles that we see within the book, the selected miracles that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he has selected to put in. And as we come to chapter 11, I believe we're coming to the most significant miracle before the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is even more significant. But before that one, this is the most significant of the ones that John is presenting to us in the book. It is known to us very well as the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And that's what I've entitled the entire chapter, chapter 11. And almost anyone that I've read and so forth has the same type of title to it or something along those lines. But it is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It is now the seventh miracle that John has presented to us in this book. And as I said, it is the most amazing. He has left the, the most amazing to last apart from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which will come in chapter 20, and then the multiplying of the fish when they catch the fish in chapter 21. But apart from those two, this is the last of the seven that he's presenting as miracles because he's then going to end his public ministry and we are going to see him moving toward the crucifixion. He is, let me remind you, he's presented the miracle of the water being changed to wine in chapter 2. He has given us the healing of the officer's son in chapter 4. He gave us the healing of the lame man. That was in chapter 5. He gave us the feeding of the 5,000. That was in chapter 6. And again in chapter 6, right after that, the miracle of him walking on the water as he came to the disciples. And most recently, as we have just looked at it, we have seen the miracle of the man 
that had been born blind. And that was in chapter 9 as it continued on into chapter 10 and studied it together. So that's where we are. He's now presenting in chapter 11 with his purpose of John chapter 20 of now presenting us another sign, keeping in mind so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life through his name as we come into this tremendous miracle. Just a couple of comments on something that I really feel is significant as I've studied this passage and read a number of materials, especially commentaries and so forth, and observed some things that are going on in our society today. Uh, we are living in a day and age in which still there is, I just saw this this past week with my wife on TV and I'm just going through a couple of things again when you get some of these presentations that are, where they're going back and tracing history. There's a tremendous denial of miracles that even happen. And people do not want to believe that there were such things as miracles. And man is going through that stage of trying to deny that anything in the Bible that happened that was miraculous indeed did incur. Now, why even mention that in relationship to this? I purposely chose Luke chapter 16 for our reading this morning because in that passage, in order to deny the historicity of this event that we're reading in chapter 11, a number of folks have said that which is found in Luke 16 and that which is found in John chapter 11 is the same event. It is not. It is not the same event. And the reason they do that is to deny the historicity. What they say is Luke is a parable. And because Luke is a parable, all John that John did is take the same parable and put it so you could understand it by putting it in a real life situation. But they then go on to deny that it's a historical event at all, justified by Luke chapter 11. All I, I mean Luke chapter 16. All I want to say to you is this. I don't want to bog down in that point. They are two different accounts. There are many, many differences. They are not the same at all. The, the most common thing is Lazarus and the name Lazarus, which is why a number of them pick on it. Because Lazarus is named in Luke and is named again in John. Lazarus was a very common name. These are two separate events altogether. So let's keep that in mind. As we go into the chapter, I want to break it down for you. As you can see from your outline, all we're going to do is get the background information today. The way I've broken down John chapter 11 is as follows. We'll look at the background in verses 1 through 16. Then we will find Jesus Christ arriving on the scene in verses 17 through 37. Then we'll look at the actual raising of Lazarus from the dead in verses 38 through 44. And then we'll see the reactions of the people in verses 45 through 59. Just to give you some idea, those that are here on a regular basis just understand where we're going with chapter 11 of John's account. Let's get right into the to the situation of the background, verses 1 through 16. And let's start, as I have on your outline there, right into the setting and the people involved. Allow me to repeat verses 1 through 3 to you. Let's look at them. Now, a certain man, uh, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, the sister of Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. The setting, first of all, is Bethany. Now, where are we dealing with Bethany? There are two Bethanies in the Bible, as you should know if you've been with us. And it's no different, just to give you, I'll give you the application or the illustration right away. 
Right now, right next to us is Salem, New Hampshire. But there is a Salem, New Hampshire. There's a Salem, Massachusetts. Another example with Massachusetts and New Hampshire would be Concord. We have Lexington and Concord where the battle was fought, but then we have Concord in the state of New Hampshire, which is its capital. And so we can understand that there are different locations. It was no different in Bible times. They had some places that were named the same. And I think the significance that we want to see here is he has been in the first one is Bethany beyond the Jordan. And you notice in verse 40, by the way, he said that he went again, and this is important, I think, for interpretation. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. There is a Bethany, we're not sure of the exact location of it even today, but it is beyond the, uh, the Jordan where John was baptizing. If you go back to John chapter 1 for just a moment, John chapter 1, because it's been a long time since we've been in John chapter 1. But I want you to see verse 28. Let the scriptures interpret themselves. Um, I would say 90% of the commentaries that I consulted with had a different location for where John, uh, the Lord is in chapter 10. I'm going to tell you where I think he was personally. I think he was in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Why? Well, if you look in John chapter 1, verse 28, the writer here put it this way. These things took place in Bethany, now watch, beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. That is how John, the writer, put where John the Baptist was ministering. Remember when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, take away the sin of the world, in the very next verse and so forth. He was beyond the Jordan in Bethany. And if you go back now to our text, in chapter 10, verse 40, he was very specific to say that Jesus now went again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And so as much as I've read in every other commentary that there's two different places that are named, I think it was Bethany beyond the Jordan for that reason within the context of the book. But the fact of the matter is that's one Bethany that we find. And the second one is what we find in our text here in chapter 11. And we know it's different because this one is said to be in Judea. How do we know that? Back in our text in John chapter 11, if you look at verse 7, when the Lord's getting ready to go to Lazarus and his sisters, it says in verse 7, Then after this he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. So he's gone beyond the Jordan, and now he's coming back to the Bethany that is named in chapter 11. In verse 1, it is a suburb of Jerusalem. It is about two miles, for those of you that have been over there, it is about two miles east of the Mount of Olives. And we know that because the text tells us that. We didn't read that far, but take a look at verse 18 for a second. John chapter 11, verse 18. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem. That again is identifying which Bethany? About two miles. Now, some of you may have a little of the older language there and so forth. But that's what it breaks down to. Uh, whether it uses one or two different terms there, it's the same thing. It's boiling down to about two miles. It is the home, according to chapter 11, verse 1, it is the Bethany, which is the village of Mary and her sister Martha, and obviously Lazarus. So what we've got is two different places, and the writer wants to identify that where this miracle is going to take place is not the one beyond the Jordan, but that which Mary and, and Martha, where they live. And it, the other significant thing that I'll give you here today, because I think it'll tie into the text all the way along, 
from the reading I was able to do, even looking at the distance, it takes about one day if you're walking from where Jesus was to where Bethany would be, where the miracle is going to take place. We'll see the significance of that as it comes out when it says that Lazarus was dead for four days. All right, that's just a little bit for, for the setting. So that's verse 1. Where is he? He's in the village of Mary and Martha there. And uh, before I get to the anointing in verse 2, what I want to do is identify for you next the people of the text. And I'm going to tell you why. In identifying the people of the text, what I want to give you, the first person in the text, I believe, not that you're going to read there, is the main character. Most often when people read this and uh, and study it and so forth, the main character is seen as Lazarus. He's not. If you get that, you haven't seen the forest from the trees. Lazarus is not the main character. The main character in John chapter 11 is Jesus Christ. He's the main character. That is why John put this passage in. It is so we would focus in, not so much on Lazarus, but on the person of Jesus Christ. Why would I say that? Because in chapter 11, he's written it and recorded it so that we would understand that Jesus is the Messiah by this miracle that he's going to do. That we would understand and identify with who he is in his person by what he's capable of doing. We're going to see this morning, he's omniscient again. Because he's able to even know that Lazarus was dead. So the first person you want to focus in is not Martha or Mary or even Lazarus. It's Jesus Christ. This is here so that you understand that he is the Messiah and that he is God. He is the main character in the text. It's to show that he is the Messiah. And we don't want to miss that. So he is the first person that we see in here. The second one is Lazarus. He'll be the person that's raised. And then there's Mary and there's Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. But there's also three other characters that we don't want to miss here, which comes back to why Jesus is the focus of attention. Why? When the fourth character that we see here, or actually the fifth, I should say, are the disciples. Don't miss it. In the setting here, we have also the disciples who are there. Go to verse 11. I'm sorry, go to verse 7. In verse 7 it says, then after this, he said to his disciples. So all the way through this chapter, his disciples are there. Why are they there? Look at verse 15. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. That is where Lazarus is going to be raised. Why? He tells you why. So that, here's the purpose, you may believe. In other words, he's instructing his disciples. So in chapter 11, one of the other characters that are there, one of the other people that is being focused in on is the disciples. Because the Lord is teaching his disciples by this miracle. This isn't just a miracle that's picked to make it nice for us to see that God can raise people from the dead. Not at all. He's also teaching and ministering. Always, 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 always. There's a lot that's said about discipleship today. I hear it in Christianity a lot. And there are programs, and by the way, very good ones. There are tapes, there are DVDs, there are all kinds of things, books that are set up and there's Sunday schools for discipleship and so forth and so on. Let me cut through all of that and say that there's a lot of good material, but listen, every single Christian should be discipled. Every single Christian. You not only should be witnessing, but you should be involved. And the Lord, no matter what he was doing, no matter where he was, was always continuing to minister. And I will also say this to you. It's a lesson to me myself and should be to you. 
that we are always growing and should be always growing. We don't have all the answers. His disciples again, now we've seen this many times in John, and they, remember with the man born blind, rather than turn around and say, well, Jesus is here, he can do it. They turned around and Jesus says, hey, who, who sinned, him or his parents? What, what's going on? And they didn't even recognize who was in their midst. Now we've got another situation where someone is sick to the point of death and actually will die. And his disciples still haven't got it. His disciples still haven't got who that is that's in their presence as the Messiah. See? So he's teaching them as well. So it's also to bring them to faith and to increase their faith. Another character that we find here is in verse 16. And that's Thomas. If you look at verse 16 for a minute. Again, just to set it to chapter 11. Why bring Thomas into the picture? I don't know other than the Lord singled him out, but I give you part of what's in my thinking. As you go into chapter 11 and you see verse 16 with Thomas, because Thomas is known as what? Doubting Thomas. Let me tell you something. I, first of all, we're not there yet, but I thank the Lord that Thomas said, I want to see the nail prints in his hand, and I want to see the marks in his feet, and I want to see it in his side. Why? Because he wanted to be absolutely sure that that was the one. That's why. And Thomas, we see here, is an example of one that's even willing to die. I'm willing to follow him. He's going to go up there and die. He hasn't caught it all yet, but he was willing to follow the Lord. And right there, early on in the chapter, is a challenge to us, practically speaking. Are we committed like this, quote-unquote, doubting Thomas, who was ready to follow the Lord, even if it meant his death? I would be willing to say that not too many people that are professing the name of Christ, while we might like to think we would, are really not ready to follow the Lord to death. You know why I'd say that? Because in our society today and in this century that we're living in, we are so busy with so many things that it takes just the slightest thing to deter us from doing what God wants us to do. Slightest. While at the same time, we're saying we'd go within the death. But Thomas was ready. And the last character I'll give you, the other one, uh, the seventh one, would be the crowd of the people. And that's from verse 42, just so you see it in chapter 11. Just scan there for a second. It says, And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. That was verse 43 that I read. I knew that you always hear me, and this is in his prayer, but notice what he says. He says, because of the people standing here, why? Look at it again. So that they may believe that you sent me. And so there's a lot of characters, not just Lazarus here. He's kind of secondary. In fact, he's got nothing to do with it. He's dead. He's just a passing, and yet he becomes a focus of attention in most people's minds. The focus of attention is Jesus Christ. And he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching the people there who he is. He's also dealing with Thomas. And he's dealing with Mary and Martha and so forth. And Lazarus, who's usually looked at primary, in my personal opinion, is the least important character at all, other than the fact that he was dead. And God's going to do a tremendous miracle. So that's kind of the setting of that. The whole point is don't just see the miracle here. See the person of Christ and what he's doing. So as you go back to verse 1, the evidence of that to me is he says a certain man. He just says a certain man named Lazarus in verse 1. Now Jesus loved this man. We see that in what we've read. But he's just a man. He's not like Jesus. Jesus is the only God-man. Lazarus is just a man. Big difference. Big difference. No other man that is just a man 
can raise a person from the dead unless God allows it. We're going to see the significance of that as we go on in the chapter, not today. Also, we see that he is sick, obviously, in verse 1. He's sick. Obviously, this is a life-threatening disease. Why? Because he dies. That one's an easy one for him. He dies, so his life-threatening. I don't know what it was. Why? God doesn't want us to get bogged down in it. If it was, he would have told us. It doesn't matter what it was. The fact of the matter is he was sick to the point of death. And what happened? This simple man who we don't know much about, his name is Lazarus. Just to give you a little background, his name is shortened for Eliezer. The Old Testament name Eliezer, it's a shortened name when you say Lazarus. It would be like saying my name is Daniel, but people call me Dan or Danny. Okay, it's a shortened name of Daniel. Same idea. That's what you've got. Now, it's interesting, the names, as you well know, with Jews, especially, were very significant. And the name Lazarus means helped by God. Isn't that interesting? Who else in the world could help this man that's dead but God? And Lazarus is chosen to be raised from the dead. So where is he? He's in Bethany, verse 2. We see that it's the Mary who anointed. Now, this is interesting. It was Mary... The Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. This Mary is well known. Why is that significant? Several reasons. Number one, John isn't going to account and give us that account until chapter 12. We haven't seen that yet in John's account. In John chapter 12, he's going to show us that event. And yet in chapter 11, he's recording the fact that this is the Mary who did it, and I haven't told you about it. Why? Very significant point, I think, again, on inspiration. Why? That we want to grasp. This event was not recorded by him until chapter 12, but under the hand of Almighty God, every single word of God was recorded, and he used the personality of the individual. It's seen right here in chapter 11, just by this verse. The people knew who he was talking about. You see, this was not John recording the events as it was happening in Jesus' life. Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to die and be resurrected. And then God is going to use by the name of inspiration. By the Holy Spirit, he's going to guide through the hand of John later to record the details. Well, how could that happen? I would forget. So would you. Because the word of God is God-breathed. It's given by God. And as we saw last week, every single word is important. Every single word. And here's another indication of that. He used the personalities, but the word of God is inerrant. And that is under tremendous attack today. People are not wanting to hear the word of God. They are saying it's nothing more than man's opinion or written by man. It was recorded by man, but guided by God. You notice what happens now in verse 3. In verse 3, the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, they sent word. That took about a day. That's why I mentioned that to you. It took about a day for that messenger to get there. I think there's some things to see here right away for application. I think it's fair to say that they expected Jesus to come. They're sending a messenger because they want to get word. They know who Jesus is, and they expect him to come. Secondly, they believe that Jesus has the ability to heal him. How do you know that? Look at verse 21. Verse 21 of John chapter 11. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They believe that. 
They believed that not only would Jesus come, but he had the ability to heal him. They also say in verse 3, it's interesting, the one whom you love. Now it's interesting because they use the word phileo here. He's basically, they're saying to him, Jesus, this is the one that you have a nice friendship love with. This is one that you have a, a good acquaintance with. He's a friend of yours. And by the way, he is a friend because Jesus in our text, in verse 11 says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He was looked at very, uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ as a very close friend. And as you look in the accounts throughout the Gospels, the Lord spent a considerable amount of time at their home and spent time fellowshipping with them. So it is someone that he loved. Now, let me pause for a second and give you application before we go into the love expressed by Jesus. That's just the first few verses. People who love Jesus trust him. Mary and Martha trusted that he could do, that he would come. They believed that he had the ability. They appealed to him. They anticipated that he was someone they could go to. Those of you that have come to Christ in our audience, because he loved us first, don't discount the importance of going before the throne of grace and praying. How well do we know our Savior? If there's one thing that we can look at early on with these women, they already said, if you were here, you wouldn't have died. They knew Jesus Christ. They knew where he was. They knew his ability. They knew they could go to him. And so often, Christians, we try to plow through our life doing things on our own. Rather than going to the throne of grace, rather than realizing we've got such a great high priest, according to Hebrews, who understands all that we're going through, and whether or not we come through a situation, we can go and we can lay things at the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to realize that we need to take advantage of them. Now I want you to see in the second part, verses 4 to 6, the love that Jesus expresses for them, or for him. It's kind of interesting. Verse 4. Verse 4, we find the purpose of the sickness. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death. And I do like the way the New American translates that, New American Standard. It's not going to end in death. He's obviously dead. He's obviously going to die physically. But that's not the end of the matter. This sickness, which is life-threatening, that's not the end of it. What is the purpose? That is not the final outcome, the death. The purpose is the rest of the verse. But for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. You see? That's the purpose of this. It isn't so that people can just rejoice in a person coming back from the dead. It isn't so that people can just rejoice that a miracle took place. The purpose of this miracle is that it's not going to end in death, not so that he can eat fish again, not so that he can even be in the presence of Mary and Martha again, but so that God can get the glory. And God's purpose in this life is that he get the glory in everything that's done. And that means my life and it means your life. Do we focus in on things that way? Think about it. If you were sick unto death and the doctor just said that to you, would you then, first of all, be praying to get out of it somehow? Lord, I know you got the ability to give me. Or would you really be looking for God to be glorified in it? Most of the time we pray to get out of things, if we're honest. But we need to focus back in. And as I said, the focus of this passage is Jesus Christ. 
and so that God would get the glory and that the Son would be glorified in it. In fact, when he got this information and said this statement, I believe that Lazarus was already dead. Why would you say that, Pastor Dan? Remember I said it would take about a, a day to get there? He's going to stay for two more days, as we'll see in just a moment, and then it's going to take him a day when he leaves to get there again, so that by the time he gets to the grave, what are they going to say? He's been dead for four days. So when he's talking to his disciples and says, this is not to the point of death, or, or it's not the end result, that it's just going to be the death. He's probably already dead when he gets the information. Now the messenger doesn't know that because the messenger's left and gone to get him. But Jesus does know that. And even though he wants us to see that God is the one that gets the glory. Let me just make a passing comment on this point. Not all sickness in life does God want healed. We are living in a society when I hear it many times that God wants all people to be healed and if you're not healed it's because you don't have enough faith. Really? That's not true. Epaphroditus was sick and by God's grace he healed him. Others died in the New Testament. We find that there was a point early on in Acts where one of the disciples, right, was killed with a sword. We think all the time when we get sick that if I just pray to God he wants me healed. The next time you have something come up in your life, pray that God would be glorified in it. He may or may not want you healed. He may be using that circumstance, just as we prayed for Betty this morning. That's her prayer, that God would use her and give her the strength. She knows she's going to die. Could God heal her? Yes, He could. But God not, does not necessarily want everybody healed of all situations, folks. He was going to let Lazarus die and by His grace would then raise him from the dead, but He was going to allow Lazarus to go through the experience of physical death. It was not the will of God for him not to die physically. So He goes on in this passage, and that He be glorified. Next thing I want you to notice is in verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and His sister and Lazarus. And I want, to, I want you to catch this. Now He uses the word agape. Rather, now, Mary came to him and said, this is the one that's your friend. This is the one that, that you love, Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ says to us something deeper. He says, no, 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 no. It's true he's my friend. But I have agape love for them. What does that mean? He is not just a friend, though he is a friend. The Lord Jesus Christ loves him in such a way that he is going to shed unmerited love, self-sacrificing love, a giving love, an unconditional love. That's the type of love that he has for this man and his family. It's more than what Martha thought. Martha saw that love, but he's saying, no, I want you to understand, my love for you, your sister, and your brother is even greater than that. In fact, in our context, I'm going to demonstrate my love and how deep it is because I'm not going to do what you want. I'm going to do what's best. Listen, what's best for Lazarus and what's best to bring honor and glory to God and what's best to reveal the glory of who Jesus Christ is. We wouldn't view it that way, but Jesus Christ is looking at it that way. We would have expected that he would have just ran, right? Look at verse 6. 
Now this is after verse 5. He loved them with agape love. And then in verse 6 he says, Now when he heard that he was sick, watch, he dropped what he was doing and he ran to Lazarus. Is that what your Bible says? Or, he's got this power, right? Jesus said, thank you for the information. Go your way. He's already healed. And so he healed him from a distance, right? Is that what your Bible says? No. I know. He called and he said, let's all gather together and have a prayer meeting and we'll pray for a healing. No. What did he do? Now listen, this is the one that loves them. He stayed two days longer. How would you feel if you were praying to the Lord for something and you thought the Lord was leading in a direction and the Lord said, great, I'm going to make you wait two days. And by the way, some commentaries say he waited two days so that Lazarus would die. I don't think so. That's why I pointed it out to you already. Because by the time Jesus gets there, he's dead for four days. Four days. He's already dead. So he wasn't delaying so that he could die. He was delaying because that was part of God's will to show them how miraculous this situation is and who Jesus Christ is. And that he does his things his way, not our way. I would have expected his concern, because he said that in verse 3, would have been that he ran to him. But he stayed right where he was for two days longer. Two days longer. Why? I don't know why totally, but I would tell you this, based on the context, probably to strengthen the faith of the disciples. Because he's going to say that in just a moment. Probably to strengthen the faith of the sisters. But certainly to reveal who he was. And to bring others to salvation. It certainly reminds us of James chapter 1. I won't turn there, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy when we fall into various and diverse trials. Knowing that, what? That through the trial, what's he doing? He's developing us that we might be perfect and mature and fit for every good reason. Right? When we go through situations, sometimes even in our prayers, we expect God to respond our way or in our timing when we want things. And God doesn't do it that way. If you really want the will of the Lord in your life, you're going to look for God's timing in God's way, even in the most difficult of situations. Because that's what will bring the most glory to Him. Not ours. Not ours. So as He instructs His disciples in verses 7 through 16, we got to wrap it up. We see the fear that the disciples had in verses 7 and 8. What do you find? Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were now just seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? They're afraid. Would you be? I would be. Jesus Christ says, let's go back to Judea. They were threatened in his life. I showed you that. They were going to try to stone him. And these disciples, though they have Jesus Christ in their midst, are afraid of at least two things. One, men rather than God. Two, they're afraid of their own safety. That will hinder us from doing the will of God many times. When we're afraid of what men think, we're afraid of our own safety, and we're human beings, so usually our security comes first. That will always be the case unless we're walking with God. There is a potential for us to impede the will of God in our lives, is what I'm trying to say to you. 
when we allow fear to get in the way, when we allow our own safety. Let me give you some practical applications on that. Just witnessing alone. Sometimes we're afraid of what people would think of us. What's my boss? What's my neighbor? What's my relatives going to think if I talk to them about Christ? What should we care? The gospel is the power of God that leadeth unto salvation. It's powerful. Give them the message. That is the will of God. Don't worry about how they'll react to you. Yes, you may be castrated from your family for a while. So be it if it's the will of God. What about moving in a situation? I know the Lord wants me to move, and I know He wants me to go here, I know He wants me to go there, but you know, I'm kind of afraid. I don't know. Why? If you know God's working in it, you go. Sometimes people never get to the mission field because of that. I have heard parents say, well, I'm praying that the Lord would just use my child some way, but I don't want him to go to this mission field or that mission field. And look at all the conditions in the world. I mean, we talked about Thailand today. Look at all that's going on in Thailand. Look at what's happening in Mexico. We prayed for Craig last week in the situation, right? He can't get back into Mexico right now because of the violence. What does it matter if God takes your life if you're in the will of God? Go where God wants you to do. They were afraid. They were afraid for Jesus too, no question about it. But they were afraid for their own life as well. Until Thomas thought different. Going into the ministry. How am I going to be able to survive? You know, if, if this is what the Lord's leading in, I don't know how I'm going to provide for my family. When I left the accounting uh, profession, that's a fact. My wife knows it. The partner of the firm came to me and then... Our own family members came to us and repeated the same thing. How are you going to survive financially? You know what my answer is? I don't know. But this is what God's leading in. And that's where I'm going. And there are sometimes young people who won't go to serve. And parents get in the way because the parents are concerned about their financial well-doing. I understand that. But if the Lord's working in a situation, what greater provider have they got? Look to the Lord. Sometimes it comes with putting Christians in a... Uh, uh, now, by the way, I need to explain this, but putting Christians in a Christian school. And I'm not saying that everybody should be in a Christian school. Those who know me well know that that's true. I'm not saying that public school is not the place for some of them. I'm not saying homeschooling isn't the place for some of them. In Christian schools. That's not what I'm saying today. But what I am saying is this. I know Christian parents who won't do it because of finances. If God is leading you in it, you follow. He will provide. You say, well, that's talking theology. Let me give you, give you an example other than myself. Most of you know, because they're no longer here, my sister's home with the Lord. My sister and her husband, Pat and Marini, raising six children when he was out of work. We sat down with him, and they lived in Derry, New Hampshire. And we sat down. I have no idea how the Lord's going to provide for me to get my children to Christian school, but I know that God, where God wants them. And they, by faith, did that, and they were provided every single penny because God is able. I'm trying to make it practical. What about supporting me financially? And what he's going to do in my life. Your God is a great God if you know him. And you can trust him. 
There's a lot of practicality. His disciples. This is why, again, Jesus Christ is the focus. He's going to train his disciples. He's going to teach them. Yes, I understand this fear. But don't fear because I'm here. And my time has not yet come. Come with me. Come with me. You see, we can let so many things get in the way. Why risk the safety and security of what we have for inconvenience, for difficulties, for even in, even, listen, life-threatening situations is what you have here. Why risk that? Why risk the security of being where you are or doing what you're doing? I'm going to tell you why. Because it's the will of God for you to go someplace, to do something, to be involved in something else. You go do it because God's leading. And that's your control. And in this situation, even his disciples, it isn't just the miracle. It's the lesson for them to depend upon the one that trusted them. For the very circumstances of life, fear is a natural byproduct. And listen, folks, walking by faith is not foolishness. Foolishness is not walking by faith. And I have to be honest in my own heart, Sometimes as a believer, when we pray, we want to see certain things fall into order and we want to have all the answers before we'll move ahead to do whatever God wants us to do. That's not walking by faith. Walking by faith is knowing what the Word of God says and sticking to it even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it doesn't make sense. Because you can count upon the dependability of the Word of God. And more importantly, you can count on the dependability of the One who's given us the Word. All of that to say, even regarding salvation. I can count on the fact that Jesus Christ says, He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by Him. How do I know I've got eternal life? Have you trusted in Christ? Not intellectually, but in your heart. Yeah, I've done what he said. I, I know I've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I know I can't save myself by religion. I know I can't save myself by good works. I know that I'm a sinner lost. And I have turned to Jesus Christ. Then you have eternal life. It's going to play right into chapter 11. Remember that? No man can pluck you out of my hand. No man can pluck you out of my Father's hand. And yet their hands tried to seize him, but they couldn't take him. Why? In the Father's hand, in the Son's hand. It's going to come up again in chapter 11. When you're in the hand of God and where God wants you, you're in the best place in the world you can be. To, to not obey God is what's foolishness. We don't have all the answers. We don't have all the security. I'm going to have to stop here in verse 8 because my time's escaped. We'll finish the passage, Lord willing, next week. But you can see even the disciples, they had this fear. Why? We don't need to fear when we're following the will of God. And you know, for practical application, the Lord Jesus Christ has promised that He's not going to forsake us. He's given us the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is a reality in life. We might not be dealing, we'll deal in depth in the text with the concept of resurrection and the concept of this resurrection. But for today, with the, the, the background to this passage and just seeing the first few verses, He was willing to do things in His timing and we need to be waiting on God's timing. Even in resurrecting someone. Even in accomplishing something. And we need to rely on the one who drives away all fear. And that is God. And that is the one we can rest in.
I don't know what you're facing. I know some of the things that I'm facing. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's mental. Sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's work. Sometimes it's honestly just seeking direction in your life. Stay in the Word of God. Read the Word of God. And as the Lord leads in, let me just leave with this. He will never, ever leave you contrary to what He's revealed. God acts according to His Word because He's faithful. And when He's leading you, even when you don't have the answers, that's what walking by faith is. Remember Galatians? You not only get saved by faith, but are you so foolish thinking that you can now walk in the Spirit? You need to walk by faith. Looking to Him. Trusting Him. Some of you in this room are out of work. How's God going to provide? He will. I don't know how. Trust me. Some of you are making decisions. Whether or not to put you, the kids in school or not in school. And that isn't why I use them. What do I do? Trust the Lord. Some of you are trying to make decisions. Who are you going to marry? Some of you are trying to make decisions. Where are you going to go to school? Some of you are trying to make decisions. How to do this or that in your family or with your relatives or work. Whatever it might be. Continue to trust God. And sometimes it will even look odd to you. It looked pretty odd to me that when he got word and he said that he loved them with an unconditional love that he waited two more days. But he did. So he may not do things the way you want, but continue to trust him and walk with him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in God, though we didn't get through the entire text this morning, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you for so great salvation. Thank you, Father, that you loved us before we loved you. That your love was expressed by your actions in sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And I know that in this auditorium there are those who have not yet come to Christ. Some because they haven't figured things out just the way they want them. Some just blind and you haven't opened up their understanding. But Father, we pray that you would help them to see that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the one that is capable of raising people from the dead. He's the one that's capable of knowing what is going on in people's lives before it happens. And He's the only one that's capable of providing eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Help them to see that. Open up their heart and mind. And for each one of us who have trusted in Christ, I pray that you'd help us to walk by faith. Help us to see our Savior as He really is. Help us even as we appeal to Him for our needs, just as Mary and Martha did, knowing that He's capable of doing it. That, Father, we'd depend upon your way of accomplishing what you want. That we wouldn't try to maneuver things our way. But that we'd follow the will of God even when our circumstances might be threatened. Our lives might be threatened. Help us not to get so bogged down in comfortableness and our situations that we're not willing to risk our lives or whatever it might be to follow Christ. But help us to be willing to follow wherever the Lord Jesus Christ might lead. And I pray, Father, that we rejoice in that so that ultimately, as we've seen in this text, you would get the honor and the glory and that our joy might be full. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.